Um, I'm like shaky with energy today. I'm so excited for John chapter 6. Like this book is just getting in my bones and messing with me. So I hope it does the same with you. Um, if you're anything like me, you also might be a little sleepy. Somehow I'm both energetic and sleepy at the same time. Stand with me one more time. We are going to read the Word of God. We do this to honor the reading of God's Word because this is not just the words of human beings. This is the very breath of God spoken to us. So John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is the Word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the spiritual provision that comes to us through your word by the power of your spirit. And with this text now between us all today, may we see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And would you give us the eyes to see who you are and how you're at work? Would you give us the ears to hear your word? Nourish us today through your word. We love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. This past week, uh, my wife was out of town visiting um, some family in Colorado, which meant uh, I had uh, the, the three kiddos all to myself, which meant a good deal of driving, a good deal of driving back and forth you know, to school, to karate, to friends' houses, to stores, to Alden Lane Nursery to get some new citrus trees to put in our backyard because it's that time of year. All the things, right? Doing all the things. But thankfully, gas prices are are really cheap right now, so it wasn't a big deal. Now, at one point, it was just me and our youngest, Olivia, who's four. We're just kind of rocking through Livermore in the awesomeness that is the Hardesty minivan. And uh, at some point between songs, I don't know if we were listening to David Crowder or Jimmy World, but it's in the middle of us singing and hanging out in the car, my daughter says, "Um, Daddy? 
because she says daddy that way. Daddy? She's almost like a British little girl. I don't know how that happened. Um, Daddy, God saved the slaves. What? Radio down. God saved the slaves. Moses. Moses, Daddy, God gave him rocks. Dad, Moses went up the mountain and God gave him rocks. And then, Daddy, guess what happened? Moses went down the mountain with those rocks. And Dad, when Moses got down, they were, they were, they were worshiping a calf. Somebody made a calf, and I don't know why, and it was a really bad idea, because they're supposed to worship God and not a calf. And so Moses was so mad that he broke the rocks and he went up the mountain. Dramatic pause. And she finishes with this line. Just wanted to tell you. In case you forgot, you're welcome. (laughs) From the mouth of babes, right? From the mouth of babes, by the way, thank you, Children's Ministry, because she was learning that here at the church, and she needed to express it. And I needed to hear those words from the little prophetess in the five-point harness in the backseat of our minivan. It made me laugh, and it kicked me in the gut. There they were, right? God's people, the ones he had rescued from slavery, rescued from Egypt. Moses, their leader, had went up the cloud and shrouded mountain to meet with God, but he was gone too long for their impatient souls. And so what do they do? They make an icon of power. They make a bowl, an image of strength and might that they have embedded into their religious operating system because they lived too long in Egypt. And it seems Egypt was still in their bloodstream. Egypt was still in their nervous system, even though they had left Pharaoh's zip code. God's rescued and redeemed people turning to Pharaoh's bullish ways of doing things. Not good. It's all too common. Daddy, I just wanted to tell you, in case you forgot. Well, so it is with the sermon today. There are some things I want to tell you in case you forgot, or maybe you're new to all of this and you've never heard this and you need to hear it for the first time. Now, the Bible is full of strange equations, and today in the Gospel of John, we come to another strange equation. Today we see that 5 plus 2 plus Jesus equals, what does that equal? Well, it equals the fourth sign of Jesus that John, the author of the gospel holds up for us like a beautiful gemstone to see and to consider. John, the author of the gospel, John is an old man as he writes this. He spent years meditating on scripture, years meditating on the life of Jesus, and he wants to paint for us a portrait to see who Jesus really is. And he paints this portrait by curating seven signs. Here's, a, here's an image. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but we went through this weeks ago. Here's an, an outlay, uh, just kind of a map of the book of John. Four main parts, right? Prologue, book of signs, book of glory, epilogue. We're in the second part here with the seven signs. You can see the big seven there. The middle of those seven signs, the fourth one, is the feeding of the 5,000, which we are in today. So hopefully that helps you locate yourself within the larger story. Now let's take a guided tour through this passage, and as we do, we will find ourselves on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
verses 1 through 4. After this, after this, well, here is a time reference. What is this after this referring to? Well, it's after the third sign. Remember what the third sign was? What happened? Yeah, the pool of Bethesda. By the way, uh, it, if you're new, it's okay when I ask questions to talk. It's okay to say things. Um, I like the energy. It helps me. Uh, so this is not just me alone up here. Uh, I need y'all, okay? So Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who was sick for 38 years. Okay, so Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. He had just healed this man who was sick for some 38 years. He had healed a little boy uh, earlier than that. He's been doing all sorts of wonderful things. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, so... Let's, let's understand what's going on here. Here's an image of the Sea of Galilee. In our story, they are going from west to east. They are going from Capernaum, which is Jesus' HQ. It's his, his headquarters, his base of operations for his Galilean ministry. And they're going to head east. They're going to head over near Bethsaida. That's different from Bethesda from last week. Not to be confusing, but it's confusing. Okay? So they are heading that way. And Jesus' following has exploded. The word has gotten out that he has turned water to the finest Merlot. The word has gotten out about a sick son who was on death's doorstep who got up because of Jesus and is now playing stickball in the neighborhood with his friends. The word has gotten out that Jesus healed a man, an invalid, paralyzed for some 38 years, who is now dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. The word has gotten out. Jesus has become quite popular. And he needed to step away. This encourages me. He needed to step away from the crush of it all, from the busyness of it all. He needed to get away to breathe, to be with his friends. He needed to be with his father and get in some quiet, to enter into some time of prayer, to get away from the crush of the crowds. So they go out into the wilderness, past the village there of Bethsaida, out into the wilderness, and Jesus gets some rest, and at least he's trying to. Now, when, when does this take place? Well, after that, we know that time marker, but it also tells us the season. What's the season? It's the spring, right? It's, it's Passover. It's the month of Nisan, which means it's March or, or April. And there's green grass, right? It's green grass. They're relaxing out there on the green grass somewhere outside in the wilderness near Bethsaida. There's Jesus at the Golan Heights up there looking down over the Sea of Galilee. And then he sees something. He sees something. Look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes. Then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus cares that we eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip then answered him, 200 denarii, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Jesus sees the masses. They're, they're coming at him. There's a cloud of dust in the distance as, as this herd of people comes his way. Evening is approaching. And we find that from the parallel passage in, in Matthew. So it's, it's getting late, and Jesus will be doing some teaching, and it will be getting later. 
So he knows the people will have needs. He knows that they're going to need to be fed, right? They followed him across the sea, out into the wilderness. He knows they have a heart hunger, but he also knows that they have a belly hunger as well. And so what Jesus is about to show us is joyful generosity and compassionate gentleness, two of our apprenticeship practices, right? We are called to be like our master, and Jesus is someone who exhibits joyful generosity and compassionate gentleness. He sees and he meets needs, and so should we. Now Jesus turns to Philip and he says, hey, where's the best bakery in these parts? Now why does he do that? Well, this is where Philip is from, we find out in the scriptures. Philip knows the area the best, so Jesus says, hey, where's the best place to buy a bunch of bread? And we know he says this to test him, right? So it seems Jesus isn't just inquiring about a local bakery. He's actually peering into the landscape of Philip's heart, wanting to know how Philip sees the world, how Philip sees Jesus, how Philip sees the situation on hand. And what does Philip do? He goes right to a resource calculation. Like, let's see, 5,000 men, that's just the men. That means there's, there's women, maybe 10, kids, 15, 20,000, 20, add the five, carry the two. Okay, um, we don't have enough cash. Jesus, we can't afford this dinner party. It's not going to happen. We can't do this. In short, the analysis is the need is too big, the resources are too small. Need is big, resources are too small. By the way, have you ever felt like that? Need is too big, resources are too small. The resources on hand are absurdly inadequate for the immense Need. Can you identify with Philip here? I know I can. When we merged our communities, our congregations, about seven years ago, we merged the Inversion Community and then, and then VCC. Like for me, I, I felt like the, the need was, was too big and my resources were too small. My mental resources were way too inadequate. My leadership resources were way inadequate. My ability emotionally to handle the challenges, the tensions, the good stuff, the hard stuff was way too small. And that's just one occasion in my life where I felt like the problem was way too immense and my resources in the physical were way too little. I love this though, but Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. It seems Jesus had a plan that included the disciples that the disciples didn't necessarily know. They weren't currently aware of the plan. And Jesus often has plans for us that we're currently unaware of, right? But what he calls us to do is to take the next faithful step even though we don't understand the full picture. And so we live in trust of him. And by the way, I love this. Philip's answer doesn't limit Jesus' actions. Notice that? Philip's answer doesn't limit Jesus' actions. So verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, said to Jesus, There is a boy. There's a boy. He has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Okay, so here, Andrew, one of the first disciples to follow Jesus, speaks up. It's like he just suddenly chimes in. He's like, Jesus, there's this kid with his Lunchables right here. 
Like we have barley loaves. And when you think of loaf, don't think like, like Wonder Bread loaf. Think like a small little biscuit, right? He's got five little biscuits of bread and these, these uh, brine pickled fish, these tiny little things. And then it's almost as though, as you read this, it's almost as though while he says it, he begins to feel a bit silly and he kind of changes course mid-sentence and his attempt to help falters with a forehead slap. And he's like, come on, Andrew. Like, what are you saying? This is like fighting the tide with a paper cup. Five plus two is not enough. Five plus two is not enough. But Jesus doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't chide Andrew or patronize him. Rather, he calls them to action. He says, organize these thousands of people. Get them seated and prepped for a meal. Gather them together. And so it says they gathered the 5,000 plus the many more. They had them sit down. Jesus calls his disciples to get the people ready to prep the table. It gets better. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, Jesus does what any good Jewish person would do when presiding over a meal. He does a blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, the King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. There's a longer version of that. That's the shorter version. Most likely he said something similar to that. And then Jesus walks about with his disciples distributing the food. Food that just keeps coming out of this small basket. And at some point, I imagine the murmurs began to grow into gasps. And I imagine the disciples are throwing, like, are you seeing this? Are you kidding me? Like glances at each other while the food keeps coming. And they're just like, oh my goodness. This goes on for who knows how long, right? Because that's a ton of people to serve. Everyone gets all they want, and it turns out five plus two plus Jesus is way more than enough. How many baskets are collected of leftovers? Twelve baskets are collected of leftovers. Everyone is fed to the full. And in the end, there's more leftovers than there was at the beginning. (laughs) When it comes to Jesus, the end is better than the beginning. And those leftovers would not be wasted. They would be taken by the twelve to feed them and to feed others as they go on their journey through the land ministering to the people. Now, Jesus has just worked a miraculous sign, a signpost that points to who he is. It's not just about bread. It's about something more. This isn't just about grumbling bellies, right? It's not just about lunch or or dinner. And the the people sense this. They sense that there's more than just a food miracle that's going on. The air's electric. It's buzzing with possibility. It's why they respond the way they do in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him their king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus is so weird. Like just when you think like you have him where you want Jesus, now's the time. Gone. They call him the prophet who was promised. They start to mobilize, to lift him up by force, a coronation of coercion is about to happen. A king seized, grabbed, manhandled, and lifted up in violent zeal because they see he has power and they want to use him. They see opportunity. They, they think this guy, this guy, he can change the status quo, but Jesus is savvy. Jesus is out. It's not this way and it's not this time. This is not how it's going to go down. So he withdrew again, right? Just remember our last story? He heals the guy at the pool. What happens to Jesus? Like ninja Jesus, right? He's just out. He's gone. So what's going on here? What is the sign? What did they see? What should we see? And how should we rightly respond where they wrongly responded? So first, let's do this. Let's, let's talk about this profit business. What is going on here? There's something more that's beneath the surface. So, the Jewish scriptures spoke of a prophet, one like Moses that would come. So, if you turn over to Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, all the way back to the beginning, go five books in, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18 tell us the following. This is Moses speaking. Moses is talking to the people before they go into the promised land. He says, The Lord your God, He will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when he gathered all the people together there, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. Okay, that's, that's a little confusing, but what, what he's saying is, Back then, when God came down and enshrouded that mountain in his glory and his cloud and his fire with his presence, everyone of you freaked out. And you didn't want to interact with this God one-on-one, so you called for a mediator. You called for a prophet, and that was Moses. And so Moses mediated this relationship. That's what he's talking about there. Verse 17, And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Amazing. Okay. So the scriptures say that one like Moses, but greater, will come to lead the people. So what makes them think Jesus is the one? What about this scene in this scenario makes them think Jesus is this prophet? What time of year is it? Spring. What's the festival that's about to happen? Passover. March. April. It's almost Passover. So the people have what great event in mind, front of mind? The Exodus. They have the Exodus, front of mind. The Exodus, the great rescue from slavery, the origin story of the nation of Israel is is boiling in their blood at this season. A tyrant taken to task, a Red Sea getaway, off into the wilderness, miracles of provision, God coming down to make himself known to his people on a mountain. Now think this through with me. Jesus has just done 
amazing signs. Water to wine. Life to a son. He has just gone over the sea, gone east into the wilderness, east to a mountain. The people followed him across the sea into the wilderness. They're hungry. They're literally physically grumbling. And Jesus miraculously provides food for them. Register the connections. You sensing them? Are you seeing them? We need to learn how to read the Bible well because when we do, we see the glory of Christ. He's incredible. And it takes a while for our, our souls to dilate, our eyes to see the brilliance of the Scriptures. But it's there. Moses went to the enslaved people. He performs signs. Water to wine or water to what? Water to blood. And then there's the death of a firstborn rather than the healing of the firstborn. And that's the Passover, right? Then he leads the people through the water into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. He provides for them a miraculous food and miraculous water. And he provides for the people in their, for the entirety of their duration. And how many tribes are there? Twelve tribes. He provides bread for them for their travels. The Twelve tribes. So again, Passover celebrates the rescue of Israel out of Egypt. God sent the plagues on the Egyptians. He took his people out into the wilderness where he provided for them both food and water. And what is more, the rescue from Egypt as Passover marks the beginning of Israel as a nation. The Jewish people have a scripturally shaped imagination. They're not dummies. When they see what's happening in John chapter 6, they're like, are you, is this him? It's happening again. It's happening again. In the people rises the hope that the promised powerful liberator has finally come. Like Moses liberated the people from the Pharaoh, maybe this Jesus would be the king who would liberate them from the Caesar. Like celebrating the 4th of July in America, Celebrating Passover stoked the embers of a nationalistic spirit, inflamed desire for freedom was in them. And recall, right? Recall Israel was occupied again by who? The Romans. There was an anti-Roman sentiment that was stoked during Passover. And so here's the deal. The miracle of Jesus here could be taken as the beginnings of a revolution. But Jesus is different. Jesus is after something way more radical than political revolution. He's after something way more radical than, than a riotous uprising. He is after the renewal of the whole world, the renewal of the cosmos, and the transformation of the human heart. So maybe now we can better see why they wanted to enforce this coronation upon him because they had a kingdom they wanted to transition into. But Jesus is not like anyone else. He will not be coerced. He will not be co-opted. Jesus walks away, and he could have lit that social powder keg with one word. He could have done it, and it was a noble cause to break the chains of oppression. But there are wrong ways to do good and right things, right? He withdraws. He sees power so differently than we do. He goes off into the mountains to be with his father. He will bring victory another way. He will redeem through suffering. His coronation will be a cross, not a throne. His crown will be made of of thorns, not of gold and jewels. He will give his life to see the world transformed and see stone hearts become flesh. 
So, so let's reflect on some of these things. Let's see if we can draw out some meaning, some, some application, some things just to wonder, wonder at this week. So the first one is this. Jesus can do infinitely more than we expect with impossible situations and inadequate resources. This is not some variation of the health and wealth gospel that takes Scripture out of context. This is just the fact of who Jesus is. Jesus can do infinitely more than we expect with impossible situations and inadequate resources. Jesus can take your tiny little lunchable picnic, right? And he can feed the world. He can do incredible things. And sometimes Jesus tests us by putting us in an overwhelming situation with absurdly inadequate resources. Will we turn to him? This is not a cruel test because he wants to see us fail. He wants for us to know what's inside us so that we actually turn to him in need. Will we turn to him? Will we trust him? Will we turn to him with our little five plus two and be like, man, I I can't, but you can That is a powerful phrase we need to get on our tongue way more often. I can't, but you can. What's your five plus two situation? Is it a relational rupture? A grand canyon-sized relational rupture, and all you have is a little kitty trampoline. and There's no way you're getting across that thing. Is it a mental health issue? A massive atmosphere of depression and darkness. And all you feel like you have is just a little flashlight on your cell phone to navigate the darkness. And that's it. And your battery's fading. Inadequate resources. Is it a physical condition? A cancer? A chronic disease? A dire diagnosis? Is it an addiction? If so, your efforts are stale barley bread and small pickled fish at best. Is it a monster of a need, an absurd inadequacy of financial resources? Take your underwhelming five plus two to Jesus. Jesus can do infinitely more than we expect with impossible situations and inadequate resources. Five plus two plus Jesus equals mind-blowing, unexpected outcomes that change lives and advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth. You do not need to be held ransom by limited resources. And some of you need to hear that. Some of you are holding back on ministry opportunities because you are being held ransom by a paradigm that says, I have limited resources. I can't. And he says, give me your barley. Give me your little pickled sardines. Stand back and be amazed. Jesus can unleash exponential flourishing. We're thinking way too small if you think bringing the 5 plus 2 to Jesus is silly. So what's your 5 plus 2? Bring it to him. Second, um, Jesus calls his apprentices to set the table and serve, but it's him, it's Jesus who provides the needed nourishment. Again, like the servant's who were told to put water into the jars to turn that water into wine. Jesus was going to do the miracle, but he calls them into it, right? Jesus is a great leader. He engages his people. He engages his apprentices to be a part of the miraculous work that he is doing. So what are we doing here on Sundays? What are we doing in our calm groups, in our 
um, our serving opportunities at, at Inklings or with benevolence or with missions. What are we, what are we doing? Well, we are setting tables. We're, we're setting people on the grass. We're organizing, we're gathering, and we're serving food. Why? Because we know the master of the feast is working. And he will deliver the nourishment. And I, I think of this especially on Sundays because here we are. Like, what are we doing? We, you know, we, we plan these services and we get the building ready and we get the, the stage ready and the, the foyer ready. And, and we, we do all of these things. But he is the one that provides the food for the feast. And what is that? That is, that is nourishment that comes through His Word by the power of His Spirit. We are fed by His Word. And we, as His ministers, we just get to be a part of the goodness of it all. Like He's calling you to be a part of the miracles that He's working on this earth to see the kingdom advance. Like, how cool is that? If people think church is boring and the Scripture is boring and they're unfulfilling, it's just like, No! <laughs> It's the opposite. You are called into the greatest move of the power of God ever. And we get to be a part of it. We don't have to go to church on Sunday. We get to come and feast on our king. Look, I... (laughs) We go to concerts all the time. We go to movies all the time. A brand new movie comes out. I'm going to be first in line. Because I've been waiting for this new Batman. I've been waiting for whatever Marvel. Marvel, like, 595. Because there's a ton of them. And and we go first to these things because we want to get in. We want to get close. We want to go feast off of these things. Why is it that when it comes to gathering and sitting around God's word, hearing God speak to us, singing good news over each other, I gotta go to church. Maybe I'll sneak in late. And that's not just, I get it, our schedules are hard, we have kids, I got three kids, it's tough. But there should also be a hunger and a desire in the apprentices to get close to the master rather than sit on the far edges, get close and lean in. What if our community sees that? This is not a bid just to fill up pews, but what if there's a stinking line out of churches all over this valley because God's doing renewal work and people are longing to hear the word of God and sing the good news over each other? Sorry, back to notes. Keep it going. Can't even, I can't even see. My glasses are foggy. Third, Jesus is king on his own terms and conditions, not ours. Too often we appropriate Jesus for our mission. He will not be a puppet king. He will not have his strings pulled. You cannot simply add him to your agenda, whatever it is. He will not be controlled or put up as our candidate of choice for the campaigns that we construct. He won't be the mascot for our messianic plans. He won't be the icon for our empire building. He won't be rushed or bullied or boxed in or manipulated by our voting power or blocks. He won't be controlled by our misguided coronations. He is total redemption. He brings total renewal. Nothing less. He won't be turned into a bull god. And I wonder, 13 years of ministry here, like how many times 
Have I appropriated him and agendaized him, put him on my agenda? Instead of sitting at the feet and listening. How many times have I had a campaign that I created a Jesus King for button and put it on and asked people to vote for? And he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? For Jesus is the only one who satisfies our spiritual hunger. Every one of us is born with a relentless spiritual hunger and it outs in all sorts of twisted ways, right? We have a desire, a deep desire for union with the good, the beautiful, and the true. That's because we are created for, destined for, designed for union with Christ by the power of his spirit to be in union with our Father. That is what, that's why we're designed to image him, to be drawn into the life of the Trinity. Yet we are too easily placated with bread and fish, with sex, with pleasure, with growing bank accounts, and more followers and hashtags and Netflix. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So we are called to feed on Christ and to receive Christ Daily, he is our strength. Our daily life is to be lived in Christ's power, not ours alone. And by the way, let's just make this clear. Like, we are physical and spiritual beings, and we are meant to eat what is nourishing to us, both physically and spiritually on the daily. So if you were to eat once a week, let's just call it Sunday for funds. Sunday, you eat your meal. Come Monday, how are you feeling? Dull and sluggish. Tuesday, how are you feeling? Well, you're groaning and you're grumbly, right? Come Wednesday, you're just flat out hangry. Thursday, you're a bonafide mess. Friday, you're a monster. Saturday, you're a weary zombie. You haven't eaten all week, but so many of us live that way spiritually. Oh, Sunday, it's, it's getting the Word of God day. You will be a mess by Monday afternoon. Your spiritual metabolism will be jacked up. You are to feed on Christ. Daily, this is why scripture meditation, unceasing prayer, and life together are the rhythms of our lives. Okay, uh, so let's, let's work to bring this to a close. Uh, Jesus is going to explain to these crowds what he's doing, what this sign means. Later in the chapter, um, the massive crowd clamors after Jesus again because the miracles are, you know, they, they've happened and, and they, now people know about this bread deal. And so they're like, wow, wonder bread. And they're following Jesus across the sea. But Jesus will not let them stay at the level of five plus two. They need to get to five plus two plus Jesus. They need more than a full belly. They need a new and full heart. And so he says this. I'm just going to read this and let this, let this do its ministerial work on you by the power of the Spirit. John chapter 6, verse 32 through 35. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Help me out. Who's he talking about? Jesus. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. Give us, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I don't have time to read the whole chapter, so skip, skip, skip. Read that to yourself later today. Verse 51 through 52. Verse 51 through 52. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoa, Jesus, what's going on? The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is it, what, cannibal? Messiah? This is not good, guys. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is... Excuse me, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate in Exodus and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Boom. Mic drop. Now, how do the people respond? Like, yes! Jesus, Jesus. They're totally dismayed, right? This guy is not who they want him to be. He seems a little bit unhinged, right? The bread king does not seem to be the one to get them to the place that they want to be. So they begin to walk away. They grumble, just like their forebears did when God provided the bread back in Exodus. The crowd thins out, hope falters. This exciting new change leader that they were waiting for, this trending hope for Moses 2.0, this rising star and potential Caesar-crushing king, is a bizarre and morbid man who says, eat my body. Whoever feasts on him will have eternal life. Whoever feasts on his blood and bread will be resurrected to new life. And before they walk away, they're like, give us this bread. And Jesus says, really? Like, I just showed you. I am Moses 2.0, but more so, I am the bread king who brings true life. I alone will satisfy you. And so this is the fourth sign. Jesus is the prophet who truly liberates. Moses, all along, was to point us to Jesus. He was just a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the prophet who truly liberates. He himself is the bread from heaven that nourishes his people as they trust him, as they bring him into their life. He's Moses 2.0, the long-awaited redeemer. He is our spiritual food, broken and given to us for our healing and our restoration. So what are we to do? Well, our work is not to not add him to our agendas to use him in our self-salvation projects or appropriate him as a mascot for our ideologies and political parties. And let's be honest, we have added Jesus to our political movements in mass over the last two years. And he walks away from those scenes. And he goes to be with the Father and moves in unexpected ways through counterintuitive measures. He, then he tells us in John 5, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. That's what we are called to do, to trust in him 
to abide with him, to obey with him, that we might be made in his image, all because we have been united to him by the power of his spirit. So good. So remember, remember the sermon my four-year-old preached to me in our minivan while driving on Isabel Avenue in Livermore last week. Daddy, God saved the slaves. And Daddy, God, God gave Moses rocks. Moses went up the mountain and he gave him rocks and, and Moses went down the mountain with rocks and if you haven't figured out what those rocks are by now, those are the Ten Commandments. And then he went down and, and, and the people made a calf which was a bad idea because they're only supposed to worship God and they're worshiping this calf. Some guy made the calf. I don't know why, Daddy, but it was a bad idea. And then Moses broke the rocks and he went back up the mountain. Dramatic pause. I just wanted to tell you, in case you forgot, you're welcome. Well, friends, Jesus has saved the enslaved. And you know what? He has put his law in our hearts by the power of his spirit. And we needed that because humans had stony hearts. We have stony hearts until he changes us. And we have worshipped, and we still, to degrees, worship silly power gods, bull gods, pleasure gods, and try to add Jesus to our agenda like he's an app to our operating system. So Jesus climbed a mountain. He climbed a tree, a Roman cross, and was broken for us that we might be made new, that we could trust him to give him allegiance as our king because Jesus is the prophet who liberates. He himself is the bread from heaven that nourishes his people. Dramatic pause. Friends, I just want to tell you, in case you forgot. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. You are gracious to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the bread of your body that you have provided for us. We love you. May this time of confession and communion now be loaded in a whole new way for us. And may we enter into the joy and gravity of this moment as we come to this table of your grace. Amen.